All right. So, um, how's everybody doing this evening? Um, I'm, I miss y'all. We were we've been gone for for a little bit. Um, it's good to be back. Um, I happened to come back, and it was it's been a busy week at work, so it's been um, time consuming there. And then um, in trying to put together um, tonight's study, um, I'm hoping that I didn't bite off more than I can chew. If I did, we'll break it up. Um, I'm gonna try to keep an eye on keep an eye on the time as I was preparing it's just more and more stuff i was like i don't leave this out don't leave this out so um that's that's not an uncommon thing for for me i'll know that um but i'll do my best to uh, not linger too long on any places that i feel like we've touched in the past that you should have some familiarity with um and we'll just kind of use use those as um, reminders i think oftentimes we need to be reminded so the last three times that we were together studying on heaven We've been diving deeper and deeper and deeper um, into uh, the, our, our considerations about the eternal state. So just as a reminder, and this is going to come up again along the way, um, of some of the ideas and things that we've looked at um, over the past weeks, um, kind of beginning, considering the resurrection, considering the, the pattern of how we examine our hope of resurrection bodies in light of Christ resurrection and what we see in scripture and then taking that same approach and kind of pushing forward and we spent some time looking at uh, the book of Romans specifically the hope that we get here this this glimmer of hope that we get um, for the end of futility itself and kind of looked there at the purpose of futility the the reason that God has subjected this world to uh, to futility the reason for thorns and thistles if you will uh, and then the last time we were together, we, uh, we looked at the idea that um, we have this hope in Scripture that any place that the curse has touched, God's grace and mercy is extending out into that. Um, so kind of building off of that, I wanted, to take a, I wanted to take tonight and kind of think of a couple, think of a couple of different pitfalls that we, that we oftentimes, I think, uh, find ourselves encountering. Um, I, I think that these can be applied spe- to specific questions that we're going to be kind of addressing tonight. But I also think that the general idea that we're going to see here is something that um, that can be applied in in all areas of our of our uh, Christian uh, living. Um, so. I'm going to list for you the two pitfalls that we're going to look at, and then we're going to look at the two questions that we're going to kind of uh, try to group these under. And I, I would caution you and say that this, there's not a hard line between which category these questions might fall into. There's going to be some bleed over from one category to the next. Um, so uh, be, aware, be aware of that. Um, but for the sake of uh, our conversation tonight, I wanted to kind of break it up into two kind of big categories. So the two pitfalls that we'll oftentimes find when we consider heaven um, and when we consider our view of heaven um, is we're going to find a pitfall of, of what I'm calling extra biblical influences. And we'll look at some examples of that. And then we're going to find another pitfall 
which is simply incomplete biblical perspectives. All right. So extra biblical influences. What does extra extra biblical mean, Landon? That's just anything outside of Scripture. Right. So um, particularly, particularly, we're going to be looking at negative extra biblical influences. We're going to kind of pick out one case study and and, and look at a couple of different things there. Um, But there's a whole class of things that that we could throw into there that we're not going to have time to look at tonight. And then we're going to look at incomplete biblical perspectives and kind of wrap tonight's study up in that uh, in that category. So what is the idea of incomplete biblical perspectives? I think that's fairly straightforward, but I'll try to make it a little bit simpler. It's the idea that like you take one passage and that has more weight than another passage and you build everything that you think off of one passage instead of over the totality of what Scripture as a whole says about a particular topic, right? So um, one weapon against that would be the idea of taking an approach like systematic theology and and systematically looking at things and saying, what does the whole of Scripture say about this particular thing? The antithesis of this, or not applying that type of approach to our study and our and our um, just approach in general would lead us to where we have biblical perspectives that are incomplete. And we're going to look at how that can affect the way that we think about heaven specifically tonight. But like I said at the beginning, this is something that can be applied in other areas. So the things that we learned tonight, they're not just solely something that's going to be applied to these questions that we're going to kind of use this to address. It's something that can be applied more broadly, and I would encourage you to do that. So the two questions that we're going to be trying to um, take a stab at today, and um, I'll, you, you can be the judge of whether or not we do a sufficient job of, of answering it in the in the short amount of time that we have, um, is this. So uh, the first question, why is it said that the world is not our home, right? Have you ever heard that phrase, the world is not our home? Um, why is that said? And is that accurate and what do we what do i mean by accurate is there a time frame that's involved in that so why is it said that the world or the earth is not our home that's the first question that we're going to be looking at tonight um, what has influenced our thoughts in that area uh, and then the second question why do we have this vision of the future that looks like the old hymn i'll fly away Right. I think many of us, when we think about when when we think about heaven, um, it could probably be classified in that. Like how I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, especially if you think that I'm going to do any uh, make any attempt at shooting holes in, in these things. But I would venture to say that if you don't hold that perspective now that you have at some point in the past or you hold it to some degree now, this idea of flying away to heaven, um, and I'm gonna, we're going to kind of address that in the, in, in the section of incomplete biblical perspectives, right? Um, and we're going to use kind of that idea there as we do that. So, tonight is a study on guardrails. It's like guardrail inception. It's guardrails on guardrails on guardrails tonight. So the passage of text that we're going to start out with tonight is a guardrail against the discussions that we're going to have tonight, right? So the first guardrails that we're going to be looking at in Scripture tonight is actually guardrails against the things that we'll be 
talking about later so that it kind of builds up like go this direction don't don't go too far or you'll go off the cliff go this direction don't go too far to this direction or you might go off this cliff so we're going to build up some guardrails um, kind of a, around the discussion tonight. And we're going we're to do that by thinking about the kingdom of heaven, looking at a couple of different places in text where it speaks about the kingdom of heaven and then using it to kind of build up our idea, uh, some, some ideas that we'll use as we start kind of progressing through uh, the rest of this. So if you will, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. So the three passages that we're going to look at real quickly... Um, <clears throat> historically, they would just be kind of in chronological order, not one directly after the other, um, but certainly one following the other um, in the life and ministry of, of Jesus here. So uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From this time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, does this sound like an urgent cry, an urgent plea that Jesus is making to those who would hear him? Is, is there an urgency to what he's saying here? Right? So he's saying repent, right? That, that word in and of itself, there's urgency that comes with that, right? Like, make a turn from where you're going, repent, right? And adding to that urgency or supporting the urgency of the need to repent comes as for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if the need to repent is urgent, could we imply from that that this the kingdom of heaven is at hand is not a far off thing, but a near term thing? Like, it, do y'all think that would be a safe assumption to draw out of the connection between the need to repent and the kingdom coming. Yes? Alright? So this urgency that comes with the call to repentance tied to the kingdom of heaven being at hand. Um, Matthew chapter 6. Go there with me now. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. This is kind of Jesus' pattern for how we ought to pray. This is not the first time that you've heard me uh, speak this verse from the pulpit. I love this verse. I love this like praying with purpose towards the kingdom of God coming to earth. It's a, it's a beautiful text. I love, I love the pattern that Jesus puts forward here. So let's, let's read this. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. So is this the same kingdom that he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Right? So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Right? So I want you to pay attention to this, this kingdom, the urgency of the kingdom. Jesus Praying and giving us in his like pattern of prayer a way to pray. And in times past when I've looked at this verse, I've, I've asked this question, so I'll go ahead and ask it to you today. Do you think that the Son of God, when he prays to his Father, that his Father listens? Do you think that he's like, nah, son, 
Not today. Not going to listen to you today. Obviously not, right? That would be foolish to think that the Son of God would pray to God and would, it would fall on deaf ears, right? So we have Jesus here praying to God for this very thing, the kingdom to come. We see him calling for repentance because the coming kingdom is at hand. This urgent coming of the kingdom. And then he's also giving this as a pattern that we should pray for. So should we be praying that the kingdom comes to earth? That his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And if he's faithful to answer his son's prayer and his son leads us to pray like this, will he be faithful as we join his son in this prayer that the kingdom would come to earth as it is in heaven? Right now. So this is one side of the guardrails, the urgency. Right. We're going to look at this other side of the guardrail. And I'll say, save one, like if you, let's, let's go ahead and look at the guardrail before we look at um, what it's saving us from here. All right. So John chapter 18, verse 36 and 37. Go ahead and, and go there with me. All right. So chronologically, um, what we've seen in Matthew 4, what we've seen in Matthew 6 have, have occurred at the time that Jesus finds himself um, kind of on trial before Pontius Pilate. And Jesus answered it here in verse 36. And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be to delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. All right, so we're going to come back to that last phrase that he says there at the end of verse 36. Um, but I want us to finish reading and then just kind of consider what we've seen in the two verses prior to this and how that connects with this idea that his kingdom is not of this world, but he's calling. What is he, what's, what's he doing here in the prior verses is something that we should be thinking about. Uh, so verse 37, Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king, Jesus answered. You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So, is the kingdom upon us? What do we make then of my kingdom is not of this world? What do, what do we make of that? So one, one danger would be to take and look at the first two verses that we looked at and to push them forward farther than they should be pushed. That's one danger, right? That type of danger could lead you into just as much false belief as the danger that I would tend to want to point you towards Next, right? Like my tendency is to look at that and be like, yes, bring it. Right. But I know that there's a danger there, because if I say he's already brung it, why aren't you living in victory? You lack faith. 
So you're sick. That's where that type of push could lead you, right? The kingdom's come already in full completion. You're sick because you haven't taken it to yourself yet. That's that's the danger that that could lead you in. But then the other danger would be, this is not the kingdom that he's looking to overthrow. Right? That's where the other one would come in. Right? Is that it would take all of our hope and say, this is ditched and we're just looking for that next kingdom. Right? Because... What does it say? My kingdom is not of this world. So what we would say is if his kingdom's not of this world, then I want to go to the next. True? But the guardrails don't allow us to go there. Right? What the guard what the guardrails do lead us in the direction of is that his kingdom is coming even now to this earth. Though we will encounter opposition as we take it out, we are proclaiming His victory. We are staking, this is His. This is His. You are His. You are His. You are His. You are His. Even though there may be some of you that are His, that are here tonight, that haven't submitted yourself to Him yet. Yet we make that proclamation. You are His. Right? We proclaim the Gospel in this hope that His kingdom would come. And as we proclaim, more and more we find that it's come. This is why like 2 billion from a, from a handful of believers. Now 2 billion. And then week after week we find Aslam sending us like these reports of believers being baptized in Pakistan. We're to believe there is to take upon yourself suffering and persecution. And yet, the kingdom comes. His kingdom is coming. But we're not there yet. Right? But that does not mean that we should be looking to pull the ripcord and exit for another world. Right? What Scripture points us towards is His reclaiming of this one. And we are, as the church, a part of that reclamation effort. As we go out and we proclaim the Gospel and the Spirit moves in that proclamation and souls are brought to Him by it. More and more the Kingdom comes. Alright, so another... Um, Verse that I want us to look at, and um, depending on your translation of, the, of like whatever translation you're reading from tonight, I'm going to read you a particular translation from a particular verse that I think was done poorly. Um, if you have this Bible, I'm not saying throw it out; it's trash. That's not what I'm. That's not what I'm saying. But I want to point you. I want to point you to a particular place where we need to be aware of the types 
of translations that are being used, the type of translation that we use, the benefits of it, the pros of it, the cons of it. We also need to be aware that um, there is an original language that these are translated from, and if ever you find yourself in doubt, there are, you live in the age of information, you can find this out without me. Right? There are good tools, good resources out there. Um, I use the Blue Letter, the Blue Letter Bible app for, for this particular uh, for this particular one, so um, I, I am not sponsored by that. <laughs> um, so um, it's a, it's a good app. If you're not using it, you should. It's super beneficial. We're going to look at a particularly bad translation that would give you reading this one outside of the context. Now, reading it in the context that you would find it, you would come to the same conclusion that I've come to that this just this is, was a poor choice of words here. Um, so I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14 um, from the New Living Bible translation. Um, and like I say, this is, not, this is not like a knock against it as a whole. This is just be aware um, that um, the New Living, or excuse me, the Living Bible, so the T-L- B. So this is not the New Living Translation, um, though it has a it has a similar. Uh, so um, he, Hebrews chapter thirteen. We're going to look at verse fourteen and what it says here. So this is I'm going to be reading it first out of the New Living Bible. Or I keep saying New Living. I, I do not mean New Living. Um, the Living Bible. Okay, T L B. <laughs> TLB, the Living Bible. If I say it enough, I won't say new in the middle of it. So, the Living Bible. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. For this world is not our home. We are looking forward to our everlasting home in heaven. Um, so, if you happen to have that translation, and that's the one that you have in use, or if you happen to like search on Google on the right day when, that, when it pulls that exact phrase up to the top, then you might look at yourself and you might say, clearly it says that this world is not our home. Um, and this is where, like, again, like I look at this, this is an unfortunate, an unf like you miss something. Like if you're looking at this text in the new, not new, in the living Bible, the TLB, you miss something, a connection here. Um, this just, it's just unfor it's unfortunate in this translation. Um, if I could get in touch with the authors of this, I would be like, hey, guys, just FYI, um, something something gets missed in the in the way that you've chosen to translate this. So um, the the living Bibles, the particularly what I want you to pay attention to is this first this first um, part of the sentence for this world is not our home. That's not what it says in the original um, in the original text. Um, so you can look this up if you want to. Go to Strong's Concordance, G4172. Strong's Concordance, you can get it in the Blue Letter Bible um, app. Super easy to jump around through it, um, which is why I recommend it. If you don't, you can just go get a Strong's Concordance. Look this word up. Uh, polis, P-O-L-I-S, is the transliteration of this word. It means a city. It means one's native city. It means the city in which one lives. Now, um, is a city the world? 
So you could see how, and this is why, like, if, you, if you're not in the TLB, yours probably says city. Um, and I'm going to, the, the translation that I tend to go through um, is the ESV. And Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14 in the ESV, which is a, a beautiful um, way to think about this. It says, for here we have no lasting city. Right. Um, We are citizens of another city, you could say, Uh, citizens of another country. Um, But we seek the city that is to come. Now, um, the reason that I think that the TLB, there's a just an unfortunate thing that you miss here is because we look in the book of Revelation and the final chapters. And what do we see? What do we see? But the coming of that city. The coming of that city to this world. Right? We see the coming of that city to this world. That city which is our home makes its resting place. It's coming down here. Right? So when it says for this world is not our home in that one... um, Read it in the full context of that, and you will see how it, it really couldn't couldn't intend that. Um, but city is the proper way that that should be seen. So that's just that's an extra one on top of this because as I was looking at it, I was just like, this is super unfortunate that it says this um, because it can cause great confusion. Specifically, when we're asking the question tonight, why is it said that the world is not our home? Part of the answer could that <laughs> to that could be you're reading out of the TLB. <laughs> <laughs> that could be that could be uh, the reason there. This is also a good time to make to make a point that um, different English translations have different kind of translation philosophies behind them. We've covered this um, in the past in the systematic theology study. I would encourage you to go back to that if you want more information on that. Um, it's up on the podcast. And we spent a whole lot of time digging into the different philosophies, um, and and I'm kind of made a point there for for why I tend to lean towards the, the ESV, which is a it's more strict to the word for word translation uh, than something like the TLB there, or the NLT, which I used to I enjoy for like just um, easy reading, uh, but when it comes to pulpit, I've been comes to preaching from the pulpit, I've been convinced um, it's, it's, it's better for me at least to have a text that is closer to the original in a word-for-word kind of translation philosophy than, than a more loosely, one, loosely worded one like, uh, like this one here because these kind of, these kind of things can come up and, and change the way that you think about certain things. So um, we're 26 minutes in. <laughs> Um, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to call an audible. We we will probably only get through the first of the of the two um, sections if we want to make if we want to make decent time for today. So um, I'm gonna go ahead and and say that we're gonna do that, and then we're gonna be out. So we've kind of laid a groundwork for for um, thinking about these things. Um, so the first of the categories, the, and, and in this category, we're going to be thinking about this question: Why is it said that the world is not our home, um, other than the, the TLB said it? Um, and we're going to think about why it is that that idea has kind of permeated 
so much of um, Christian Christian thinking um, over the years. Uh, so a couple of exa- so we're going to be looking now at the extra biblical influences or influences that you will find, like things that influence you that are not scripture. Think about it like that. So this is like these are pitfalls of things that influence the way that you think about the way the world works or the way that life works or the way that eternity works or the way that salvation works that you did not get because you read it from Scripture. That's extra biblical. So extra biblical influences a couple of examples of that. Music, books, traditions. So like what I mean by music. I'm not just talking about like you listen to secular music. What are you thinking kind of thing. Um, But the idea that like you will take your theology from a hymn with no supporting evidence from Scripture. Like that would be an extra biblical influence on your thinking. Or that you would take a book simply because it came from the Christian bookstore and that would have for you more influence than Scripture itself would have over you in the way that you think about particular things, right? Um, Traditions. That would mean that you grew up in a church thinking a particular way, never questioning it or never looking for it in Scripture itself, but just simply doing that thing because it happened. This also includes like cultural truisms, like live your best life now or anything that would have anything to do with like prosperity, health, wealth, Type type doctrines, um, YOLO, like you only live once. Do what you do what you want to do. Type uh, type things that would uh, infiltrate Christian thinking. Um, and then particularly, we're going to look at one that goes way back, um, which is Plato's influence on the Jewish and early Christian thinking. And we're going to see how some of his thoughts have kind of been there, predating Christ coming onto the scene, influences that it had in and upon the Jews, and how the early Christian church was influenced by some of these ideas as well. So I said Plato, um, that name probably sounds familiar. You're like, it seems like I've heard that somewhere. You probably can't put your finger on it, and that's okay. Um, I'm not talking about that dog. That's Pluto. <laughs> right? That's not who we're talking about here. We're talking about the philosopher Plato. Um, and we're going to explore some of his thoughts. And it had, it had, he, he had far reaching um, influence through the ideas that he put out. Not all bad, but the ones that are bad are like. Very bad, like very bad. Yes. Um, so I'm not. I like. I like the way this guy thinks, right? I like the way that this guy thinks and digs into things. Um, but he demonstrates in his thinking the extent to which humans can go without God telling us, no, 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 no. This is this is it. This is actually what's true. You were kind of reaching and groping in the right direction, but this is actually what's true. Um, and we'll kind of we'll, we'll look at that. So um, for those of you who are like, well, who is Plato? Um, I got a quick little blurb about him just to kind of give you an idea of who he is when he lived. Um, so Plato was an ancient Greek philosopher who lived from 427 to 347 BCE. 
He was a student of Socrates and a teacher of Aristotle. Those are other, other names that you probably have heard, but maybe can't necessarily put your finger on. Um, this makes him a central figure in the history of Western philosophy. Uh, Plato founded the Academy in Athens, one of the earliest known organized schools in Western civilization. He is best known for his dialogues, which cover a wide range of topics, including ethics, politics, metaphysics, epistemology. Plato's work laid the foundation for, for Western ph philosophical and scientific thought and his ideas on the nature of reality, the theory of forms, and the ideal state continue to influence intellectual discourse today in the time of Christ, contemporary to Christ. So if you, if you know how time, how we kind of do the marking of time, 427 to 347, that's before Christ. Um, during the life of Christ, um, the ideas of Plato had influenced Greek society Hellenist, Hellenist Jews were influenced by this. Um, because the Jews had Scripture, and because truth was there, there was some fighting off of some of the false ideas that occurred, um, but that doesn't mean that it didn't have influence into uh, Jewish thinking as well. There was a, there's a, a famous Jewish philosopher named Philo of Alexandria. He was a contemporary of, of Jesus, um, and he explored these connections between um, Plato's philosophy and the Jewish thoughts of the day. Uh, so I, I, want to, I want us to push back into this far-reaching thing versus like pick up a particular book and say, don't let this influence you, or pick up a particular music and be like, don't let this influence you. I want to push us back so that we can see how even things that you think today came about Ages and ages and ages and ages ago. And these, these types of influences we have to consider and think about. Uh, and we have to align, align these thoughts and ideas with Scripture. Um, so I've, I've identified, and, and this is we're kind of getting close to the end here. So, so please stick with me and I promise we'll be done in, in short time. I'm not going into the second section. We'll do that next time. Uh, I want to look at three particular Ideas that Plato put forward. And I want us to think about how these might influence you and might still even today have influence over thoughts that you have. Um, they've, it certainly had influence over early, um, early uh, Christian um, believers. Like um, there's uh, uh, even this idea of Christian Platonism, which is like uh, doing in a similar way to what Philo was doing and trying to integrate these thoughts with um, the Jewish way of thinking. It's the idea of integrating these thoughts with um, with Christian thinking. And and um, there are going to be some areas where and the ones that we're going to look at tonight, it's just these things don't align. It is not aligned with Scripture, um, but you can see how these might influence things that you've heard or things that perhaps you've believed in the past. So uh, one of those things is his view of the inferiority of the material world, right? He elevated the spiritual while playing down to the material, right? And this goes farther when we think about the body itself. 
Um, but Plato's philosophy often views the physical world as inferior, inferior to the spiritual realm, which conflicts with the biblical affirmation of the goodness of creation. Look at Genesis chapter 1. Right? Look at the creation narrative where we see God repeatedly saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. These things that He's created, He calls them good. Christianity teaches that God created the material world and declared it good. This stands in contrast to Plato's ideas that downplay the material world. But if you think about it for a moment, and you think about how oftentimes our view of heaven is influenced in a very similar way, right? To where sometimes it feels unnatural to think about heaven as a physical place. And this is part of what we've been doing over this study is trying to like shed some of these, these thoughts that are <coughs> frankly unbiblical concerning um, what our hope is for heaven. So, so that's one. And that has, had a, that has had an influence that I would say uh, even permeates uh, Christian thinking today where the material world is downplayed um, in light of a spiritual world in which we can't see in our mind's eye at all. Right? While I would say to you that every one of those who looked Jesus in the face and saw Him ascend to heaven were looking forward to the day that they would look Him in the face again with their eyes. Right? Um, another uh, one of his, and this is kind of permeates out of this idea of like this disdain for the material world is the body is seen as a prison of the soul or a prison for the soul. So Plato's separation between body and soul can lead to a devaluation of the body and physical life, even to the extreme of considering the body a prison for the soul leading to desires of being freed from the body, right? Now, we look to be freed from this body of sin, but our hope is not merely to be freed from this body to live disembodied. Our hope is a resurrection hope. But if we pause for a second and we think about this, what we will find is very often we stop when we exit the body, our hope for the future stops oftentimes when we exit the body. This is a very platonic, platonic, plutonic, whatever view of our hope, because that is not your final hope. As we've discussed, as we've been looking at uh, the intermediate state in, in past discussions. Another um, thing, another thought that he has in regards to forms, um, forms being these eternal things that exist, um, and we know that there is one thing eternal, one thing, one thing and one thing only, and that is the God who was, who is, and is to come, the God who is presupposed when in the beginning God created, right? Right? Um, he is the only eternal 
Um, there is no other form but him. And then that idea presses forward even further. And we see this. This is another one of those things that Christianity hasn't escaped this idea as well. I would say that this is not this is in no way ever considered orthodox thinking. But I have, in fact, heard people who are not and I'm not questioning their um, their love and faith in Jesus. These are blood bought believers who I've heard speak of, of things of this, this, these next ideas. And it's just not true, but its origins predate our generation or the generations before us, uh, even back beyond uh, the generations of the disciples. Um, to the time of Plato and his putting forward this idea of the pre-existence of the soul, right? What do I mean? What is the idea of pre-existence of the soul? Is that Plato had the idea that the soul exists before the physical embodiment of the soul. And this conflicts with Christian teaching that life begins at conception. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, if you are looking for a scripture reference uh, to that. And that humans are a unified combination of body and soul created by God, which is what Scripture teaches. So um, you were not floating off somewhere before your conception. He knits you together, body and soul, in your mother's womb. The idea, these ideas of pre-existent souls also lead to like Eastern ideas of religion that would like lead to things like reincarnation, thoughts like that, um, which are in um, direct conflict with what Scripture says about uh, the soul before life and after death. Um, so to conclude this first point, and this is the wrap up, uh, for tonight, to conclude this first point, I believe that over time we have been conditioned by extra biblical influences to consider this life a thing that we need to escape from when the totality of Scripture points instead to a renewal of God's creation, a complete restoration of what He has called good, both our bodies and creation. We will end there for tonight.